Hello and welcome to episode one of Mr. Pharrell's Power and Conflict Poetry Podcast. Boom, boom. I hope you're all safe and well and uh, you're kicking coronavirus in the butt. Okay, and staying indoors and being safe and not going out and not playing in parks and doing stuff that I've seen loads of crazy people doing. Just stay safe. Anyway, back to the poem. So the poem we're going to be learning about today is a poem called Ozzy Mandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Bysshe, Bysshe. I never know if I pronounce that middle name right. So we're just going to stick with Percy Shelley. So, but before we read the poem, I need to give you a bit of, you know, overall context about Shelley as a person. Shelley as a character. Shelley who wrote Ozzy Mandias in 1817. Shelley the, the romanticist. So, Percy Bysshe Shelley, oh there I go, there I did, I did it again. Percy Shelley was a romantic poet who only really became famous after his death. I mean like, you died and you become famous. That's not good. Like, make me famous now, not when I'm dead. He wrote Ozymandias in 1817 after hearing about how an Italian explorer had retrieved the statue from the desert. From the desert. But let's go back to that word, romantic poet. Romanticism was a movement that had a big influence on art and literature in the late 1700s and early 1800s, okay? I wasn't around in them times, so don't be thinking about it, right? Romantic poets believed in emotion rather than reason. Pit like me. I'm an emotional guy, okay? Don't let these muscles fool you. Um, Emotions rather than reason try to capture intense experiences in their work and particularly focus on the power of nature. Shelley also disliked monarchies, absolute power and the oppression of ordinary people. We're just ordinary people. I mean like ordinary people like us, like the people at the bottom, people that aren't royal have got like royal families and stuff. Um, His radical political views were inspired by the events of the French Revolution where the monarchy was overthrown. Now, lots of monarchies have been overthrown um, over our time period. I mean, like, one time I got rude to my mum, innit, and tried to, tried to put her in her place. That didn't work out. That was, a, that was a, an overthrowing that didn't quite get overthrown. I mean, I think I got overthrown to my bedroom somewhere and a good slap, but, yeah, never try and overthrow your mum, man, it's, or your dad. It's, they, 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 they're your parents, don't do that. It's not good. It's not a good look. Now it's time to read the poem, Ozymandias, by Percy Biasi Shelley. I met a traveller from an antique land, who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that his sculptor were those passions read, which yet survive Stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretched far away.
hope the reading of the poem was okay because we're now going to go through and break the poem down line for line going over words language structure form all that sort of stuff that you guys normally find boring in a classroom but hey it's, it's a podcast it's something different you know I'm expanding horizons here work with me guys so you may want to get a hard copy of the poem in front of you that you can work from or you may want to listen to that piece of poetry I did earlier again um, but we're going to go through and break it down so the first line I met a traveller from an antique land Shelley frames the poem as a story to make it clear that the narrator hasn't even seen the statue himself he's only heard about it this emphasises how unimportant Ozymandias is now line two who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone okay so this emphasises the size and the, the stature, but also shows the statue is incomplete, okay? It's incomplete because it's time and nature of obviously corroded and crumbled this statue down. Stand, stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk. So the setting suggests an absence of life and vitality, okay? So there's nothing around, it's just in the sand in the desert somewhere. There's nothing around it. A shattered visage lies, half-fraught and wrinkled up, and the sneer of cold command. The sculpture understands the arrogance of the ruler, okay? There's irony. Even a powerful human can't control the damaging effects of time or of nature, okay? They both end up winning and both end up lasting the longer of anything in, in our world. So that's why it's really important for us to look after the earth, because... Time and nature will always outlast us. And when we're born, we come from the earth and we die, we go back to the earth, you know? It's an age-old prophecy. So, tell the sculpture where those passions read, which yet survive, stamped in those lifeless things. So, there's a mocking sense. Can, he, can mean to, to mock, can mean to ridicule or to create likeness of something. Okay, perhaps the sculpture intends his statue to make fun of Ozymandias. Okay? And you think about the word survive and lifeless on the same line. Hint at how art can outlast human power. But the ruined statue shows that ultimately art can't immortalise power either. The hand that mocked him and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal those words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. King of Kings, an arrogant stare. Okay, and powerful, he's even challenged other rulers. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Having a stressed syllable at the start of a line heightens Ozymandias' cone of command. Look upon me. Um, and nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Okay, the ruined statue shows how human achievements are insignificant compared to the passing of time. The lone and level sand stretch far away. Alliteration emphasises the feeling of empty space in the surrounding desert. The desert is vast and survives far longer than the broken statue, emphasising the in- in- insignificance of the statue and of, of men as it... Uh, emphasises... Oh, tongue twister today, boy! The insignificance of the statue and of Ozymandias as a person. If 
I went too fast on the poem breakdown, I do apologise. Please rewind it back and listen to it over a few times. I've also got a bit of tongue twired. Tongue twired? Tongue twired! That's a good word. I'm, I'm, I'm claiming that. I also got a bit tongue tired on the last bit, so uh, I do apologise. I'm new to this, okay, guys? Work with me, alright? Work with me. So, the next thing I want to do is I want to highlight a few things um, about the poem. So, we need to understand what the poem is about, okay? So, number one. The narrator meets a traveller who tells him about a statue standing in the middle of the desert. Okay, so we've got to make make it clear that the person who's talking in the poem hasn't actually seen the statue, it's just they've been told about this statue that stands as this great commanding force or used to. It's a statue of a king who ruled over a past civilization. His face is proud and he arrogantly boasts about how powerful he is in an inscription on the statue's base. Okay, so at the base of the statue it says, Look on my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, look on my works, ye mighty and despair. So that is on the statue. It also quotes that in the poem. Number three, however, the statue has fallen down and crumbled away so that only the, the ruins remain. So time and nature have taken over the ruins of the statue. Okay, and like I said before, time and nature will outlast most things in the world. Maybe not single-use plastics, but other than that, they will outlast most things in the world. So, let's learn about the form and the structure and language. Number one, we'll go over form. The poem is a sonic, okay? It's 14 lines in length, which we know that already, with a turning point, a bolter. At line nine, like a Petrocan sonnet, however, it doesn't follow a regular sonnet rhyme scheme perhaps reflecting the way that human power and structures can be destroyed but human power and nature is just it's all unorganized we don't know when storms happen necessarily we can sort of make some really good guesstimated work through devices we have but you know the poem is sort of unstructured a bit like how nature is it uses iambic pentameter okay de-dum 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 like the heartbeat but this is also often disrupted like a heartbeat can be disrupted when you fall in love or when you get pain or when you're hurt or when something happens that triggers your heart to either speed up or slow down. The story is a second-hand account, like we stated earlier. So it's the person talking to the poem is talking about someone who's told him this information of what they see. But it also distances the poem from the reader, okay? And it distances us, the reader, further away from the dead king because... Now we're listening to a third-hand account of this person seeing this statue. It's a first-hand account. It's a person who saw the statue. Then you've got a second-hand account, that, that message being passed on. It's a bit like Chinese whispers. We keep taking that information on. Number two, the structure. The narrator builds up an image of the statue by focusing on the different parts of it in turn. The poem ends up by describing the enormous desert, which helps us to sum up the insignificance of the statue and comes back once again to the power of nature. Because nature is so vast, it's so big, you know. There's irony. There's nothing left to show. Number three, irony. There's nothing left to show for the ruler's arrogant boasting of his great civilization. The ruined statue can be seen as a symbol for the temporary statue of political power or human achievement. Shelley's use of irony reflects his hatred of oppression and his belief that it, it is possible to overturn social and political order. Number four, 
language of power. The poem focuses on the power of Ozymandias, representing human power. However, his power has been lost and is only visible due to the power of art. Ultimately, nature has ruined the statue, showing that nature and time have more power than anything else. Angry language. The tyranny of the ruler is suggested through aggressive language. So just key pick up words in the poem that we might want to focus on. So the word pride. The ruler was proud of what he'd achieved. He called on other rulers to admire what he had done, what he did. Arrogance. The inscription shows that the ruler believed that he was the most powerful ruler in the land. Nobody else could compete with him. He also thought he was better than those he ruled. King of kings. Power. Human civilization and achievements are insignificant compared to the passing of time. Art has the power to persevere elements of human existence, but is also only temporary. So, just to finish off, um, I want to go through steps to really think about and questions to think about when um, and to answer when doing this poem or when looking over this poem. So question one, why do you think the poem is set in a vague antique land? Question one, why do you think the poem is set in a vague antique land? Question two, why do you think nothing besides remains comes directly after the ruler's proud inscription? So why do you think nothing beside remains comes directly after the ruler's proud inscription? Question three, what does the poem suggest about the way Ozymandias ruled? The way he ran his land, the way he commanded or talked to directed people. Okay, so question three. What does the poem suggest about the way Ozymandias ruled? Question four. How might Shelley's status as a romantic poet have affected the tone of the poem? You know, how did he, how his views on life and culture and society, how did it have an effect on the poem? Because he was a romanticist, yeah? And if you go back to the start, we talked about what romanticism was, okay, the impact. So question four, how might Shelley's status as a romantic poet have affected the tone of the poem? I hope you enjoyed this mini podcast series. It's only podcast number one. I'll be coming back with... 14 others. I hope my voice doesn't bore you too much. Um, yeah, peace out.